Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye. I am joined by Sue Wilton and Peter Cat. Good to have you both on the podcast as always. Thank you, Dom. You do. And uh, today, look, we have wanted to do an episode specifically on faith and sexuality for uh, probably since we started the podcast, really. We've just been waiting for the, the right opportunity to present itself. I suppose it's also an interesting one, Peter, in the cathedral setting where sexuality is something that somewhat has probably been resolved some time ago, you know, being quite a openly inclusive place. But we realise for many of our listeners that probably isn't the case. Mm. They are still part of communities where it is not resolved, where there is still conflict, there's still tension, there's still some very um, damaging, potentially, theology and, and ideology that is being used. So uh, hopefully this discussion can be a something of a uh, something illuminating for, for potentially people in those areas. Our guest today is Chris Chabs, who was featured in the TV show Christians Like Us on SBS recently. Uh, also a gay conversion therapy activist, um, a, a gay Christian who went through gay conversion therapy, which we will discuss as well. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining the podcast. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, as, as a starting point, maybe in the discussion of faith and sexuality, we'll, we'll get to, I suppose, some of the theological um, uh, side of this a bit later on in the podcast. But just to begin with, can we hear your story maybe of of being a, what it, what it was like to be a gay Christian in an environment early on that, that was certainly not supportive of that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, I, I grew up with a uh, Christian family, um, went to a charismatic Baptist church from birth. So um, very, very involved in church. I was at church, you know, three days a week um, for most of my life. Um, and it was everything to me, you know, um, particularly as I got old enough to start going to youth group and things like that. You know, it was um, it was my life, you know. Um, I also went to a Christian school, so I was kind of in a Christian bubble, really, as a kid. Um, so I didn't have much outside experience. Um, all my friends were Christian, you know, um, and people would be surprised how much kids pick up, I think. Um, I was very, very young when I started to hear... Uh, certain ideology about what it means to be gay and what that means in terms of our faith. Um, so, you know, at the age of eight and nine, I already knew that gay people were sick and that they were uh, broken uh, and that they uh, weren't living the way that God intended them to. And I, I knew that I was gay from probably when I was about 10, you know. Um, not that I probably thought of myself as a homosexual, but I knew that I was attracted to other males um, and that I was very, um, I, I was feminine, you know, compared with a lot of other kids. And so I did know in my heart that I was gay, but I didn't necessarily, you know, verbalise that, of course. Um, so it was pretty scary for me hearing stuff in church about, you know, um, gay people being sick and broken and all of these kinds of things because that became how I saw myself, you know. I realised that, oh my goodness, I'm sick and I'm broken, you know. Um, and I mean, I remember hearing a, a conversation between my dad and another guy at church once. Um, this other guy was saying that 
um, that a gay man had walked in off the street and that they'd started to pray for him and that they cast seven demons of homosexuality out of him, you know? Um, And I remember listening to that. I think I was about 10 and I was absolutely frightened to my core because suddenly I thought, oh my God, maybe I'm demon possessed, you know? Um, And for a kid that loves Jesus, and I mean, for any kid anyway, but, you know, that was the most terrifying thought, you know, and it was real for me, you know, it wasn't just some, you know, uh, um, like I I really thought that maybe I had a demon and that I was going to go to hell, you know, Um, and I remember being really terrified of that. Um, So I kind of grew up hearing stuff about gay people that really affected the way that I saw myself. So by the time I was, you know, a teenager, I was already well aware that being gay was not okay and that I was, you know, in need of being fixed. And so when it came time for um, me to actually come out, I told my pastor that I was gay. How old were you at this stage? I was 16 when I actually got the guts up to say something about it. And he told me that there was a ministry called Living Waters that helps gay people to be healed. And I was raring to go because, you know, all that groundwork had already been done. You know, like Mm. I already believed I needed a fix. So when someone offered it, I was ready and willing, you know. Right, so at the age of 16, you entered gay conversion therapy, is that correct? Um, I, no, I started, well, I started uh, Christian counselling at 16 towards heterosexuality, um, but um, I didn't go to Living Waters until I was 19, so I decided to wait till I finished school so that I could focus my whole, like, all of my energy on trying to fix what was wrong. Because it was like, it was, it was a really... Um, it was a big thing. It wasn't something that I could put on a back burner. Like I, you know, I, I wanted my whole life to be about Jesus. You know, I wanted to be in ministry. I wanted to, um, to be a missionary, you know, from a very young age. Um, and I felt like my life is not going to be able to start until I fix this problem. Because I can't be a gay missionary, you know. I can't be, um, yeah, I, I, I can't have the life that God's intended for me until I fix this, you know. And so I really needed to get it done. So yeah. at, at this stage, did anyone else in your inner circle, family, friends know about that you were seeking Christian counselling for this? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, this yeah. yeah. My knowledge? family did, yeah. Yep. Um, so when I came out to my pastor, he told me that I had to tell my parents, and so I did. Um, and, you know, they were very loving. <laughs> my parents, uh, you know, they struggled because, of course, they'd grown up with the ideology that, you know, being gay is broken as well. And so... Um, you know, they, I was very lucky in that I had parents that told me that they loved me and that they, they loved me regardless. Um, but they certainly struggled, you know, having a gay son. (laughs) Um, so yeah, they were supportive of me going through efforts to change. Yeah. So you have a few years of Christian counseling. Hmm. 
take us into, I guess, what that is. You said Christian counselling yeah. towards heterosexuality. Mm. What does that actually look like? What What did they try to do? Um, it's, I mean, basically it was talking about uh, you, uh, my relationships uh, with, you know, mainly with my dad because, you know, a common um, idea is that, you know, if you've got a relationship with your father is that's not, you know, in harmony or that's not perfect that maybe maybe you're trying to fix that through you know sex with other guys or you know like you've developed an unhealthy attraction because you weren't able to get affirmation from your father or something like that so a lot of it was based around that um and also you know and and other things as well you know um but you know essentially it was about trying to find a cause for the homosexuality that's what it boils down to it was trying to 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 assign blame for uh for the sexual problem yeah and did they find what they thought the cause was did they yeah um well <laughs> i mean i mean look i've heard a lot of weird things through my my efforts i mean i you know some christians think that it's a demonic cause you mm. know i you know i i did I went to exorcisms because I thought, well, maybe they're right, you know. And so, um, you know, anything from, you know, it's it's demonic, we need to cast it out to, you know, oh, it's it's relationship with your father. That's why I remember sitting in a Living Waters um, uh, meeting where um, uh, a man came and took the session that day and he told us that if we weren't breastfed as children that perhaps that could have caused some kind of spiritual blockage or, you know, emotional need that was unmet. And that's why we were gay. And so then we had to... So all your parents are to blame uh, I know, and you. I know, you know, and so, you know, and so then we had to say a prayer of forgiveness for our mothers, Gosh. you know. And I mean, I remember sitting there and praying that prayer and I was like, well, because I was like, you know, it sounds weird. And even then I was thinking this sounds like rubbish. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it my all. And so I prayed that prayer with everything that I had. And I remember asking mum later if she'd breastfed me. And of course I had been, you know, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, finding blame. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, you, you would have seen it if, if you've watched Boy Erased, the, the mm. movie about gay commission, you know, he's made that the, 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 the map of his family tree. You know, trying to find oh, the, uh, uh, were there sins in 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 our family tree? You know, was anyone was was there a drunk? Was there a gambler? Was there this or that? You know, and so parts of it was were like that, where you're trying to find the sins of the forefather that might have passed down this curse. You know, um, so the ideology it's quite broad, um, but it's about trying to assign blame mm. for your sexual deviancy. You know. Yeah. And so all along at this stage, up until when you go to mm. Living Waters, and even there, you, you your intention, there was no part of you that was like, maybe I want to be gay and live gay. Your no, whole focus was absolutely to get... Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was 16, I went through a phase, um, or 16, going on 17, I think, um, where I did want to have a boyfriend. Um, so it lasted for about six months and I remember the whole time I was thinking, I'm going to go to hell for this, you know? Um, and I, I remember, I mean, I was intensely afraid, you know, but it was like, I, 
I just had to be honest about it. So after I came out to my pastor, I started doing the counseling for a little bit. Um, I remember thinking, you know, I wonder what it'd be like to just accept this. And I tried to do that for six months. Mm. Um, and then after six months, I was at a Christian event. Um, cause of course I was still going to youth group and doing all those things. Um, and felt convicted that I was doing the wrong thing and that God had a better plan for me, you know, because of course, you know, one of the other things that I was taught and a lot of people are taught is that if you're gay, you can't have meaningful relationships and you can't have, you know, like gay, gay people don't have, um, fulfilling relationships that over the long term, you know, it's, it's a lonely life, you know? And so that was probably part of it too, Mm. you know, but I, you know, I, yeah. And so I threw myself back into ex-gay, um, therapy and, you know, decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be straight and I'm going to, yeah. So you get to, to out of school. You've mm. done a few years of this Christian counseling, mm-hmm. um, which, wh- wh- how were you feeling at the end of that? Were you feeling more confused, more angry? Did you feel like progress had been made? No. Um, yeah. So as, as I went on, it was, the desperation grew because obviously nothing was changing. Um, and I, I mean, I can't really explain the desperation because it's, you know, when when your Christian life is so important to you and your relationship with Jesus is so important, I mean, I literally had this future planned where I was going to be a full-time missionary overseas. You know, that's what I wanted more than anything. Um, and it was kind of being ruined by the fact that I had these unwanted feelings. You know, um, the desperation was really real particularly since none of my christian friends seemed to have anything remotely similar and not only that but they didn't understand it you know mm. um I, I was quite open that i was gay so I, I never hid it um but i was very also very open about the fact that i was ex-gay i was not acting on those feelings or desires i was gonna become straight god was gonna heal me you know but people in the church it was like they they'd sort of say well if you don't want to do it and you you really give it to God, then he'll heal you because he doesn't want you to be like that, you know? And it was like, or, you know, have Chris, have you really given it to God? Have you really, have you turned away from that? Like, like in your heart, have you really given it up? And I, you know, and that was being said to me right up until I left the ex-gay movement um, when I was 23. Um, and I'd tried everything mm. with my whole heart, you know, and I, it, I, I actually remember I was, um, this was when I was still a Christian singer and I, I was on tour in Melbourne and my best friend, um, we were walking across a road in Melbourne. Um, we'd just finished a show and she said out of the blue, she said, Chris, how are you going with all the gay stuff? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I mean you know, you've been doing this for ages. You're like, are you still like, you don't have the feelings anymore. Right. And I sort of looked at her and I was like, what do you mean? Yes, I do. That's, 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 that's why I'm struggling because I don't want these feelings. And she was like, oh, but 
Chris, if like if you really didn't want them, are you sure that you haven't <laughs> just held on to it in your heart or something? Because God would heal you if you didn't want it. And it was like a slap in the face. Like, I can't tell you how hurt I was that this person who had seen, she had seen me struggle, mm. uh, you know, and all the stuff that I was going to, I mean, the, the lengths, like exorcisms, reading books, I was, um, you know, I'd pray and cry to God. And I was, you know, I would, um, you know, I even went to, you know, uh, you know, sermons about, you know, like special nights and, you know, for her to turn around and say, if you really tried or if you really didn't want it, then God would do it. It was like, it was like being punched in the gut, but a hundred times worse, you know? Mm. Um, And that as an ex gay Christian at the time, like that experience was over and over again. It started from when I was probably about 19 all the way through till I finished, you know, where people in the church would kind of, have this like they were dubious about whether I really wanted to change and it didn't matter what lengths I went to you know or how hard I tried it wasn't enough for them to be satisfied that well maybe he's you know maybe it's not a choice you know (laughs) yeah and and I suppose it takes many years to unlearn a lot of the stuff you learned earlier and to to not be scared of because i imagine i'm learning it <laughs> you're still right, and probably a lifelong journey but but yes, I, it will be i suppose it's not a situation where you can just drop that stuff and and think oh great well that theology was wrong so i move on now with my life and no um the, well, the tapes are still running well i mean and you know you can't as a child you can't learn those things about yourself because i was learning about myself that i was sick that i was broken even though it wasn't directly it, it wasn't directed at me I was learning that I was sick and that I was broken and that I was, you know, um, not the way God intended me to be. And those that messaging and that ideology, you hear that as a child and you take it on board, it becomes part of how you see yourself. You, it. I mean, I'm 33. I've been out of the ex-gay movement for 10 years now and I'm quite happy being a gay man. I'm quite happy being a gay Christian man, you know, but it still affects me, you know, mm. and it's taken years of a lot of work um, and a lot of um, help to try and, um, I guess, change change the way that I see myself, you know? I wonder if, if you could sit down with 19-year-old Chris right now and he's, you know, just packing his bags, maybe head off to Living Waters, which we'll chat about in a minute. Mm. But if you could sit down with him right now what do you reckon you'd say, do? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, there's things that I think 19-year-old Chris needs to know, but I think, at you know, at that time in my life, I was just so... It was... <sighs> hating who I was was so real for me. You know, it wouldn't have mattered who sat down with me and told me, you're okay. God's made you the way that you are and he loves you. And he loves the way that you move. He loves the way that you talk. He loves you. It wouldn't have mattered who said that to me because I'd been taught to hate myself. You know, I'd been taught that I was innately broken and wrong. You know, it wouldn't matter who said that to me, Mm. you know. So I don't know what I'd say to him. 
what was your experience of faith at the at the time did you feel <laughs> that your faith was was making things worse did you feel that it was providing some I didn't re- feel reprieve? that um no i i mean i had a very real relationship with jesus um and i mean i i got comfort from um from you know speaking to him and knowing him as a friend but um, I, I also have to say that my faith was very, um, very inflexible. And, I, you know, as I progressed in the ex-gay movement as well, it became, you know, I, it was like I was walking a tightrope because I had to, you know, that's how thin the road was, you know, like if I put a step wrong then maybe I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. You know, that's what mm. I felt like. It was, um, you know, I was very hard on myself, very strict. Um, uh, follow, you, you know, I, and, you know, I, I actually found that, you know, as I got older, you know, I'd be reading the Bible and, you know, people would talk about the Bible like this beautiful book full of grace and full of God's love. Every time I read the Bible, I didn't get any of that. I'd, I, I'd, I'd read it and I'd be like, this is like, it's law. It's all, I feel condemned when I read the Bible, you know? And that's, that was really, that was how I experienced reading the Bible. I didn't used to feel that way, but like, as I moved on in the ex-gay stuff, I really did. I'd read things and I just felt like, I can't live up to this. I'm, I am the worst person, you know, I'm innately bad and I, I'm never going to be, you know, I'm not even worthy to read these pages. That's how I felt, you know. Maybe this would be a good time then to jump into um, your your time in the gay conversion mm. therapy. So you, at 19, what was it? Was mm. it a situation where you had to go and stay somewhere for a period of time? Uh, no. So, I mean, we don't really have live-in facilities in Australia uh, when we talk about LGBT conversion. Um, that's... Uh, I, th- I think they still do in the US, but we don't really hear. We haven't had them here for a couple of decades, probably. Um, no, it ran very much like an AA course. So uh, we would meet together once a week um, and we would uh, have a time of worship together. We would listen to a sermon or a talk by someone. It was a different person each week. Sometimes it was... Um, someone telling us about how, you know, about their healing. Sometimes it was, um, you know, a pastor that would come in from somewhere else. Um, but we worked out of a textbook. So every week the talk would would um, would be about one of the chapters in the manual. It was a really thick manual. Um, and, of course, it was full of all of that sort of pseudo-psychological stuff and, like, you know, uh, about, you know, how, you know, you're childhood traumas might have turned you gay and you know forgiving your mother and father and um you know stuff like that um and yeah so we we would work through a textbook we had homework to do so we we were supposed to read the chapters before we came and answer questions um and then we would break off into small groups so single sex groups um so i was in a group with uh four other guys that were ex-gay and we had two leaders and we would go around the circle confessing our sins of the week and, or confessing our, I mean, I, I never did anything, so I didn't have anything to confess, but, you know, um, our, you know, our thought lives, you know, just 
it, you know, it was quite. I mean, it was quite invasive, actually. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, we had to confess our sins, be anointed with oil. Um, and, I mean, I was thinking about it. Like, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, because, you know, someone asked me what it, what it was like um, doing that. And, I, you know, this, this one memory that I have of it was of this man who when it was his time to speak, he confessed to something. I won't say what it was, but, you know, it was something so benign. You know, I mean, now I look back at that, I'm like, that was, you know, this poor guy, you know, absolutely nothing, you know. Um, but, you know, he was, he he sat there, and I'll never forget, he was sweating and he was shaking, like with, you know, um, you know, he was nervous to tell us and, you know, he was so ashamed and just, um, you know, about something that was just nothing. Like he didn't even do anything wrong, you know, but he he felt that he had, and I mean, I, I did too at the time, I admit, you know, felt that he'd, um, you know, crossed a line. And, you know, that that image stays with me from that time. But, you know, um, a lot of Christians often ask, you know, they they, they say to me, well, what, What's the, you know? I mean, it's not nice to do that and to go, you know, to to, to work through a textbook and to you know uh, confess your, your sins and hear all that ideology. But what's I mean, really, where's the where's the damage coming from? Surely that doesn't actually damage you just showing up to a meeting, and you know that's I mean, I get asked that a lot, you know, um, and you know, it's because no, it's not sitting in a group of people and, and, and listening to them confess their sins or or, um, or, or even hearing um, another sermon about, you know, what I already knew about myself, you know. The damage had already started when I was 10, you know, when I was a little kid and I was being doused in that ideology and I was being taught that I was broken and sick. Um, and, you know the formal stuff so going to living waters um you know even doing the, the the exorcisms and um you know reading books and all all that stuff on its own um didn't damage me as much it still damaged me but it didn't damage me as much as that initial ideology mm-hmm. and what it did do was that it compacted that for me you know and so it just made it it just concreted. It set all of those beliefs that I already had about myself in concrete. Um, yeah. It's quite staggering to hear some of this stuff. Um, and I imagine to a lot of people listening to this who aren't aware that this is going on in Australia, mm. that's quite staggering to, to hear. You'd be surprised how, how common it is. And still yeah. ongoing. Absolutely. So um, a recent report uh, by La Trobe University and... And uh, the Human Rights Law Centre found that there's at least 10 organisations, at least, um, they're all underground now, they're not as open anymore, but, um, you know, at least 10 organisations still operating in Australia. Mm. Um, But beyond that, we know that um, actually um, ex-gay ideology or gay conversion ideology or LGBT conversion ideology is actually extremely common in churches all across the country. You know, this, this idea that, 
that if you're gay or you're trans, well, you've been influenced by the devil somehow, or that you, you, you know, that, that that you're sick, or that you've had some past trauma in your life that's stuffed you up, and now you you can be fixed or need to be fixed. You know, that's really common. Mm. You know, and it's not just in Christianity; it's just uh, it's un- unfortunately I think it's endemic to religion. You know, it's just. Um, yeah, but yeah, certainly in Australia, it's extremely common. And I think most people, um, even people in churches that uh, that preach um, ex-gay ideology often don't recognize it as that. You know, they, they, they think it's theology. They think that it's just what the Bible says, but it's actually not, you know? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence used to back it up. I remember being in a, in a youth... Uh, message some years ago in my my younger years where someone spoke to us about how they were healed of their gay feelings or these sort of things. And that's quite a common thing. In fact, I remember on the TV show, you were on Christians Mm. Like Us, some other people in the house of the Christians you were living in, Mm. as a defense against what you were saying, would say, no, but there's all these examples (laughs) of Christians who say they've been healed. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, about those examples. I mean, look, let's just say I have had um, a lot of conversations with a lot of ex-gay people who have claimed to be healed. Um, one of the things that really um, pushed me to leave the, ex, the, 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 the LGBT conversion movement was um, that I was in contact with a, an American, a well-known American guy who is an, a famous ex-gay Um, person who claims that he's healed Um, and I was conversing with him for months um, and eventually I I because I I was so um, worried that this was going to be I mean it had been seven years right and so I was worried that this was going to be 70 years of me trying to change this and so I, I, I asked him I said you know how long did you do this before you actually became attracted to women and lost your attraction to men you know and he said sort of said, well, well, that's, that's, that's complicated. You know, I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, well, you know, uh, and, and basically he's still attracted to men, you know, <laughs> like he's still attracted to men. It's just, he's married and he identifies as ex gay, you know? And I, that it was like when w- w- I mean, and you know, he wasn't the only one that I, um, and I won't say who it was, obviously, but you know, he wasn't the only one that I spoke to, and sort of a similar thread. Not all of them were as open as that, but you know, um, and I just realised like it kind of shattered this idea in my head that there was all these people that had been healed, because, and I realised, oh my goodness, like this has been like a massive lie. Mm. That's how it felt. At the time, that's a massive lie. So I might throw to you just hearing this, I guess, that this faith tradition that means so much to to so many of us um, has been used as a justification for things like this. What's your, I guess, your emotional reaction to that? Do you feel angry? Do you feel... Of course. I mean, not too much that this was news. It's been, I mean, the horror of of things I've witnessed for a long time, but I, I, you know, I, certainly it's shocking to think that gay conversion therapy is still going on in an organised fashion to that degree. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying to me. Um, 
it, Chris's story just is just sounds like so many other stories to me is the thing mm. you know it's the familiarity really um, and that you go gee how long does it take us uh, because I in working with teenagers particularly because I came from the same I had the same ideology um, taught to me you know yeah. um, gay people were in some way wrong broken mm. you know um, and yet, and then when I started working in schools and with kids and you'd have kids confide in you mm. um, and these are committed, they're the most committed Christian yep. kids who were so earnest and they'd confide the fact that they thought they were gay and they didn't know what to do and they would do anything, anything at all yep. to not be gay and you listen to them and you cannot, mm. cannot put together um, teaching like this and and still say you worship a god of love and it mm. wor- and you can see god's presence in these beautiful young people and go no, you know how can they they still be going on with the idea that they are in any way wrong and you know and that you know even though i had that ideology in my head um, that for me was the game changer listening yeah. listening to these kids and going that that has to um, we can't keep going on like this as church we are Absolutely. doing so much damage that bad theology does mm. so much damage to these to uh, the most earnest of our of our people yeah. mm. well, especially when you look at the suicide rates um, mental health rates yeah. for, for LGBT kids was that something you struggled with mental health on that front uh, yeah I mean particularly towards the, I mean, I mean, I I struggled with depression right through it, um, but particularly towards the end of my time uh, in the movement, um, I was really praying every day that God would kill me, because it. I just I I knew that I couldn't live life as a gay man. You know, that was just a fact. I can't be gay. And it was becoming um, more and more clear that I was actually going to be, like, for the rest of my life, that I was actually probably not going to find healing. Um, And that was, it didn't compute, you know. I, I, well, that's not an option, you know. And so I was praying to God that, you know, you, and I, I used to, cry and you know i'd even talk to my mum about it you know i'd be saying you know why god if god loves me and god you know like why why doesn't he just change me if he can why could why doesn't he just do it i've been trying like i've tried everything you know i mean my whole life had become um this tangle and you know tangle of rules and you know things that i'd set up for myself to, in, in order to try and starve out um, this problem. Um, and I, I tried everything and he hadn't done it. Like, and I just couldn't understand why. And I, you know, I'd pray to him and just say, you know, God, you know, if just either heal me or kill me. I cannot do this, you know. Um, and he didn't kill me. <laughs> um, he did heal me, but just not in the way that I <laughs> wanted at the time. <laughs> yeah. So. It, well, it might be worthwhile to, to spend some time with the theology that underpins all of this, mm. because this is the system that is r- producing stories like this again and again and mm. again. Um, as a Before we get into maybe a few of the specific verses that are so often used combatively 
against um, people who who identify as gay. Maybe we should start from a general pos- uh, position of the theology that underpins um, all of this, Peter. What, what do you think? Where do you think it comes from? What do you think the problem with it is? What what's what's the source of it, as you see it? Um, I think the source of um, this theology is that we 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 as the church often find ourselves looking in the wrong direction. If we looked if we looked back to the fact that God created the world and saw it was good and that we were blessed and that in the Jesus movement we see Jesus walking into situations where people are trampled down by culture or religion and sets sets them free to be their true and best self then we would recognize that there's a sort of a nihilist stream in a lot of Christianity that looks in exactly the opposite direction and says we are all dead and we're all horrible. Uh, women are worse than men. Gays, gays are worse than real men. And um, unless, unless Jesus fixes all of this, we're all going to go to hell. But if we looked at, fr- at from the point of view of being created and loved and that love was actually the motivator we would always be looking at a person and saying say for Chris here is a unique human being who is uniquely loved and uniquely called what is Chris called to be rather than putting normative structures onto him or other people uh, developing hierarchies uh, that where women are inferior to men, and I think we can shoot that back to the Nicene development of the Trinity, where suddenly the Trinity became hierarchical, whereas before that the images of the Trinity are of more of three equals in a dance, and that we're being invited into the dance. And if we had that sort of theology, that beautiful early Trinitarian theology, and if we took Jesus seriously, who actually came to set people free, from what religion told them they had to be and what culture had told them they had to be, then we could actually be running a religion that was really legitimately focused on love. I think, and I think one of the things that gets us into so much trouble is that the understanding of love in much of the Christian tradition is perverted. That love is somehow uh, conditional, that God is really angry. You know, there's that whole stream of Christianity that runs in, runs through the atonement theory of uh, substitutionary atonement, that God's actually angry with us, God wants to destroy us. Um, Jesus has to pay the price that because God is so cranky with us. Um, and all of that is just, it, as I say, it's nihilist. It's actually, try, it's actually, it's actually death-dealing theology. And yet the gospel for me is all about life and being liberated. And, and it's not being liberated for thing, from things that people define as, as holding people back. So it's, you know, people look at Chris and other gay men and women and trans people and say, you are obviously needing to be set free from this. Whereas if you come at it from the other point of view, it's actually saying to Chris, what do you discern that you need to be set free from? And if he hasn't been enculturated in an environment that says that he's sick, he might have been able to say, what I really need to be liberated from is the idea that I'm not worthwhile. 
Mm. And I think that's what Chris actually means when he said he discovered healing, that he actually discovered that theology and he actually discovered (laughs) that that understanding of the Jesus who walks Mm. into the troubled spaces where the religious people have been trying to oppress and telling people that this is the way God wants it. And Jesus says, well, actually, how about I just cross that line and I stand on the other side and I say, look, the sun is still shining even though I've actually broken that taboo, I've broken that rule. And you know why I've done it? I've done it because I love this woman who you want to destroy by stoning. I love this guy who you've thrown out because he's got a skin disease. I love these kids because they're children and even though you actually think they're a waste of space. And I think part of it does come down to us making God in our own image, which means that we're making God in our image of hierarchical power. Um, and and dominance and that sort of fear of retribution because that's what we dish out to one another. Um, and I do think this is um, that that women have have a bit of affinity here too because um, this this is about um, our ontological being that is that is being judged as as mm. um, distorted in some way because I actually think in a lot of these debates we don't talk about people talk about the two genders and they've got to have yeah. Adam you know the old Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve stuff I actually mm. think that we uh, you know with all the banal stuff that they can come up with um, I actually think that it's because there really is only one gender in that kind of thinking so there's a mm. male gender yep. a, a male heterosexual you know orientation gender that is then um everything else is a distortion of mm. that or anything else is is kind of a, a twisted form so we have woman being made out of adam's rib yeah. you know we have um and anyone who is diverse in gender or sexuality is clearly another distortion that's it's not so we're, we're not talking about two genders at all we're talking about this mm. fearful proclaiming of one and that's because it's hierarchy of of mm. and when you get not not a trinity that's a dance but you have a hierarchical trinity and so male, you know, um, God is male and male is God. Mm. Um, and everything else is some sort of twisted form. And, and I guess the, uh, the where I, I connected it, and it's not as strong, I don't think, in terms of, of the damage. But I think I told this once before, but I don't think we've ever aired it, that um, one of the, the strongest moments in my history of the church of, of feeling ontologically wrong was when I was um, distributing communion and I was handing out the breads and uh, because it wasn't in my own church, um, I was asked to, to stand down because someone objected to receiving communion from a woman. Wow. And the reason, and I don't think, you know, anyone, <sighs> the guys who asked me to take, the leaders in the church who asked me to step down, it was publicly, but they, the leaders who asked me to stand down and just get out of the sanctuary were didn't realise. I had no idea of the import of what they were doing mm. because what it said to me very clearly is that I, by my femininity, by the yep. very state of my being, I'm going to sully the body of Christ. I'm going to do some damage to it. I'm going to harm because that person is not able to receive it in some way because a woman is handing it over you know and that in it that's about the only connection story i've got really because i think of and it took me years that i I can sort of almost tell that story without it hurting so much now um and that but because it's about your very being Mm. you know well on the particular matter of sexuality there are a few verses which are often used as almost the, the cornerstones, I'm sure you've heard them before, Chris, being justified as, you know. <laughs> yeah, yes. I've heard them a lot. As, uh, and, and I suppose this is what this is all based on, is, um, you know, justified by, just to touch on some of them, 
briefly because I know some might criticize this podcast of this is all nice, but it's going against scripture. Sure. So to actually mm. address the scripture at hand here, um, a very common one from Leviticus it's about man shall not lie with man yep. as man does with woman. It's an mm-hmm. abomination. Yes. What are your thoughts on that, Peter? Um, well, uh, first, first thing I want to say is, and I'm very happy to deal with that because actually, actually, is a very easy uh, scripture to deal with. Um, I do want to say before we sort of travel too far into scripture wars, is just to note that I think a lot of our poor theology comes from the fact that we don't use the Bible well and we don't wrestle with the scriptures Mm. and that we don't deal with the texts of terror and name them as such and so there are some and and this leviticus one isn't particularly a text of terror because there is a is a reason behind it that makes sense culturally but i think we all just need to uh it's not just about um dealing with scripture verses it's actually in part how we deal with the scriptures Mm. as a whole but to get to 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 deal with the leviticus one uh, my understanding is that uh, that prescription comes from the fact that the uh, israelites were surrounded by a whole bunch of cult religions that actually practiced child sacrifice and that part of the cult of child sacrifice which was a fertility cult was you sacrifice your children, which is where the idea of firstborn sacrifice that is echoed in the Jewish practice comes from and gets changed by the Jews. Um, the f- part of that practice was to sacrifice your firstborn child in, by fire uh, and then visit the cultic temple and to have sacred sex with one of the male priests. And so the prescription against Mm. male-to-male sex was actually the Israelites trying to separate themselves completely Mm. from that cultic practice. The idea of same-sex attraction wasn't in their psychological understanding of human beings. So so, the, the Bible is not dealing, particularly the Old Testament, is not dealing with the things that we are dealing with. We understand ourselves completely differently. So they, they were looking at it from a corporate, because they weren't talking, they didn't see themselves as individuals, they saw themselves as part of a group. And so that's a, it is, it is a, a, a instruction to the group to have nothing to do with the cult that kills children. Mm. So it's got absolutely nothing to do with whether you're gay or not. <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with same-sex attraction. It's purely to do with cultic behavior. And Leviticus is a book about cultic behavior. Well, it's funny, even just that one, if people were more informed about the cultural context, how much damage could have been averted? Indeed. Well, in Sodom, in Sodom and Gomorrah is another one. Um, yep. you know. It's a, it's a failure of hospitality. You know, the way some people read Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd think that the whole town was gay because they want to have sex <laughs> with this guy. Well, you know, it might be some people's idea of heaven, but, you know. <laughs> I was about to make a joke, but I thought, no, I won't. <laughs> You're welcome to. 
But you know, the, the whole point of that story is that it's a failure of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Can you just unpack that a little bit Well, Lot, Lot is offering hospitality to two strangers and the men of the town come and say, hand them over because we want to sodomise them. They, in other words, we want to belittle them, we want to treat them like women, and that's part of you know, the theology you know, that's in there as well. And we want to show them that they are not welcome in our town. And Lot says... How about I give you my daughters? I mean, the story is so horrendous. That's what I mean by texts of terror. See, Mm. it's not just a matter of saying, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, therefore gays are horrible. I mean, you know, this is a story of a failure of hospitality that has layers of terror in it. Mm. And, And again, has absolutely nothing to do with being gay. I was always astonished how Lot still came up looking morally good. Yes. <laughs> I know, right? Bizarre. All right, well, let's, let's jump to some of Paul's stuff on this as well, which is the other stuff mm. that's brought up a lot. Uh, firstly, in um, 1 Corinthians, the notion that homosexuals being on that list of, of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God is the translation that we often see. Um, who wants to jump in on that one? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not a theologian, um, but my uh, the way I sort of think about it and when, when I'm asked about it this is how I usually answer it um, is that I you know when we read the Bible it's so important that we read it uh, in its historical and cultural context mm. which is something that a lot of Christians don't do which is quite bizarre um, you know if I read that verse from my you know um, modern understanding of homosexuals um, then I would, uh, then then I must be thinking that the writer of that verse was thinking about, um, you know, homosexual men that are in relationships with each other. You know, I mean, my the context of of, of my um, my sexuality. You know, I'm in a monogamous relationship, a committed relationship. It's a loving relationship. That is not what the writer of that verse was talking about. <laughs> You know, that is not that. You know, it is it's wrong to project my modern, uh, you know, understanding of homosexuality onto a verse that was written, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. You know, it's like that. It it doesn't make sense to do that. You know, if I did that with another verse, I'm sure a lot of Christians would be very upset with me for doing that. You know. Um, but we do do it with that, we, you know, um, with, with that word, homosexuals. Mm-hmm. We do do that. We project our modern understanding of sexuality onto, um, you know, a historical one that's not right. Mm. And I think it's our understanding of the last hundred years, really, of the word homosexual. Absolutely. You know, it's, this is n- not even a long history of that. You know, in, there wasn't a word for homosexual, as I understand it, in Greek mm. or Hebrew. And Paul, when he's writing, I think there's a whole mess of things culturally going on there, a whole mess of prostitution, of other religions, yeah. of other, you know, and, you know, we... To, to pull it out and to extrapolate that on to our very recent modern understanding yeah. of the word homosexual is a nonsense. Yeah. You know? To apply it to gay couples today, yes. it just doesn't make sense. And, and like. however, I, mean, I just want to put in something that's not theological, but it's just, you know, I'm angry about it. Um, you know, the, what, how we think that we would take a, to say, you know, oh, look, you know, you can be gay, but just, just don't 
practice just don't act on it just don't have any relationship you know and then and say what right do we have i mean finding a loving monogamous fulfilling relationship Mm. of companionship is is hard enough as it is you know why uh, why would you say i'm sorry you're just not entitled to this basic human Mm. need of companionship Mm. we think you're going to live some sort of in in our terms a holy life but you can't have your basic human need of companionship met you know it just makes me so angry yeah me too it is something I mean, we, we see a lot when, you know, people maybe of the faith say that and then return home to their mm. wife or husband and three kids in their yeah, suburban house. Absolutely. Right. Well, that yeah. person's sent off to their one-bedroom apartment alone because they can't, they're not entitled to that. They're not entitled yep. to intimacy. Um, so just to, to explore on a little bit further, what is the context of homosexuality where Paul is writing that, Peter? Do you, are you, are you, uh, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, my understanding is that um, Paul's actually talking about predatory behaviour. Um, so he was probably talking about uh, orgies and uh, the tendency for older men to um, predate on younger men. Like so, like pedestry mm, type pedo- stuff? Pedestry, yeah. yeah. Pedestry. Yeah, so that's right. And so, you know, and, and he's, he's fighting, um, he's trying to get some clear air for the Christian community uh, in the Roman culture. And at that time, the Roman culture, you know, the Roman culture was not really um, a great culture. It was, it was a culture of abuse, um, very violent culture. And, and so Paul is actually trying to carve out uh, a, a different understanding of, and again, it's about community. See, in, it, our focus on the individual is a very recent focus. Mm. You know, these people, these people understood themselves corporately, which was why when the head of the household became a Christian, the, the whole household became a became Christians. You know, whole households were baptized on the on the say of the head of the household, mm. and. Christians understood themselves as being a member of a community over and against Roman community. And so, so much of, so much of what Paul, or the context in which he's writing, is about how do you understand yourself in a corporate sense against a culture that is, you know, you don't forget that the Roman culture was the culture that, uh, for entertainment, ripped people apart, set people on fire... Um, had uh, slaves that could be exploited whimsically. Um, so he, he's talking. He's actually talking against a whole of a culture, and to to pick out one behaviour as if it somehow is the stellar baddie um, is bizarre. You know, if we, I'm constantly fascinated that in areas of sex we're able to comb the scriptures. Find a couple of verses that seem to to back uh, back the theory that we've got, and particularly these ones from the New Testament that are so vague, and then the ones from the Old Testament which are about cultic behaviours and hospitality, and mm. and we drag those to the forefront and say, look, this is the issue of our time. You know, like for the Anglican Church, it is the divisive issue of our time, and yet the scriptures are full of of uh, the idea that we should not own anything on our own, that we should all live in community, and you know, when Jesus 
repeatedly says sell everything that you've got and give it to the poor we go well that was a nice idea but it's not <laughs> doesn't it's not binding whereas these vague verses we given yeah, and Paul Paul wrote at a thousand well, didn't write he dictated at a thousand thousand miles an hour expecting some poor scribe to keep up with him and he mm. he's he's a whole jumble of imagery and um passion and to, to, to pull out one verse and say this proves that the issue of our time is is gender issues and and sexuality is just bizarre given that the gospel is so much more and jesus was so much more interested in how people loved one another about justice about people actually being fed um yeah i just i just think it's bizarre that sexuality and gender issues have become the real hang-up for the church Mm. And Jesus said nothing at all on, on you know, on this issue, and and yet he said an awful lot on things like oppressing oppressing the poor, on on how we use the money we have, how we actually um, treat one another, treat others who are different from us. But he says an awful lot about that, and mm. yet somehow we go away and get all hung up over who's sleeping with who. You know, <laughs> I think one of the most insulting things that often comes out is elements of the church that will say things along the lines of. No, we. I, I will still love gay people because I sin too, and mm. they will. It's a, it's a very oh, common. One. I'm sure it's a trigger point for you, Chris. But, but I hear it all the time. Even now, I hear it yeah, all yeah. the time. Because what I suppose what it does is it it um, compares uh, destructive behaviour to the most life giving element, yeah. perhaps of your life. Absolutely. Um, and it's said with almost a condescension around yes. it, a patronising tone around it. Yeah, um, it's still painful actually when I hear that. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, I'm like, I'm like you're talking about my relationship, which is actually lovely, <laughs> and you know, um, yeah, I just it's yeah, you're equating it with their sinful behaviour, or you know, it's like, well, we're on a completely different page, mate, because I, you know, it's not sin, <laughs> you know, to yeah. to me, it's you know, I don't believe that it's sin so absolutely uh so i suppose then when you deal with these these biblical texts there is that acknowledgement that really it's not something like your relationship Mm. the bible doesn't really make any comment on it because culture at the time didn't really understand it at all exactly right so i suppose that's a very helpful um Mm. lens to view all of that through uh something i do want to ask you about though peter is the other argument which is the biology argument god Mm. made man and woman you know, that's what many people say. God made man and woman. That's we are obsessed is. with binaries, aren't we? As well, Christians. And, 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 My and, goodness. And it's just not what biology... That It is not what biology says. You know, biology... Um, in terms of biology, uh, we have usually have a bell curve. And um, certainly in terms of biology, there, there, isn't, there are people who are not uh, binary... But uh, in terms of you know, human self-understanding is basically narrative rather than biological. So, mm. so we actually develop a sense of who we are through the, s- through our the way we tell our story, and so you know, as a storytelling being, um, I can mm. fully see how people can um, develop a sense of themselves that is not binary that is complex because we are complex and and things like uh, sexual attraction don't uh, don't have clear biological markers anyway 
I mean, you can't actually you can't actually identify the genes for sexual attraction. Mm. I mean, thank God, because otherwise there'd be people who'd be trying to fix it. But um, <laughs> one thing I would like to say about um, narrative and self-understanding is is that I think I think a lot of heterosexual people need to be able to admit that they don't understand same-sex attraction. They also need to understand, I think, that they don't need to understand it, but they need to understand their own sense of attraction to the members of the opposite sex and understand same-sex attraction through that lens. Mm. Uh, that uh, you know, I, as a heterosexual male, am drawn for reasons I don't understand to women. Right? It's not a rational thing. It's just who I am. And for me, that is part of who I am. It is so deeply part of me that I don't want to rationalise it and I don't want to mm. uh, explore it in a self-help group of any kind. <laughs> I just want to sit with the fact that it is what it is. Mm. And I think heterosexuals just need to accept by listening to gay, lesbian, trans people tell their story is that they too are just who they are and that they too are attracted to the people that they are just because they are. Mm. And if your experience as a heterosexual person is legitimate and it, it, then so is theirs. Mm. You don't have to understand it. You just have to appreciate it and honour it. Because I have lots of lots of straight people say to me, I don't understand same-sex attraction, and I say, neither do I. But I don't need to understand it. But I I honour my, you know, I was introduced to gay and lesbian people when I first went to university. I realise now I went to school with people too, but <laughs> small country town, we were blind to such things. And it was through the fact that they just talked about who they were that I came mm. to appreciate that it was real. And I don't need to understand it. I just need to celebrate it. You've, you've made comments like this before on the podcast, Peter, how often it is an experience of beauty that, that mm. um, transforms, that you, know, you can hold all these theological opinions you want, mm. but then if you meet a, a gay couple and you see how much richness and fulfillment they bring to each other's life you yep. you sort of hit a brick wall a little bit <laughs> that argument doesn't That's really right. stand up yeah, anymore and, and as chris says to the, then to say to describe that as somehow a manifestation of sin is yeah. is is blasphemy mm. it's actually blasphemous to call it something that is loving and beautiful and wholesome and whole making sin is yeah. just shows that your doctrine of sin needs to, a bit of work <laughs> yeah. mm. Uh, so, Chris, then picking your story back up yep. um, after the, the brief theological uh, sure. detour there, <laughs> there must have been a tipping point, I suppose. You spent a number of years in gay conversion therapy. Mm. There's a tipping point where that comes along the way you realize I can't do this anymore. Yep. What, what happened? Um, like I said, I, you know, I was at the point really where I was um, just uh, really just praying that God would either heal me or take me to heaven um and i by that point I, I i was very damaged you know um i mean i was even i was even 
looking into if it was possible to get castrated. <laughs> you know, mm. I was 23, a 23 year old male, you know, even to that point. So that shows the desperation, right? Um, you have to be pretty damaged, I think, to be even thinking about that. Um, and so, uh, you, you can imagine that, you know, um, I wasn't well. Um, I, I was very depressed, deeply depressed. Um, my mum, I spoke to her about it uh, just a few months ago. Um, and she she said that um, that I, I became a shell of who I was. Um, she said, you weren't Chris anymore. You weren't singing. You weren't laughing. You weren't making jokes. You just were a shell of, of, of you, you know? Um, and so my parents had watched over several years, the, um, the decline in my mental health and in my, um, you know, just, they saw all the damage that it was doing, not all of it, but they, you know, they, they saw enough. And, um, my mum took me out for coffee one day and, uh, just asked me how I was going and, you know, I mean, I was a very closed off person at that point. I sort of said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good, you know. And and she said, look, um, have you ever thought that maybe God hasn't healed you because you're not sick? Yay, yay. Do you <laughs> think, yeah, I know, right? She's, she said, do you think maybe God hasn't fixed you because there's nothing wrong with you? And I, you know, I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, uh, well, no, you know, and I was actually upset, you know, when she said it because I thought, well, hold on, my mum's not a Christian anymore, you know, like, you know, I thought, oh my goodness. And so, you know, I went straight for those verses that we just spoke about, you know, and I was like, nope, the Bible says homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll never have a boyfriend, you know, nope, you know, um, but really that, you know, that conversation, and it was a long conversation, I won't go into it, but, you know, she talked to me about, you know, how her and dad had spent the last several years um, researching, reading a lot about it, um, from, you know, different theological perspectives, and praying about it, and really wrestling with their own faith, um, and that they'd both come to the same conclusion that, well, actually, Christopher is fine <laughs> he is exactly who god's made him to be and um it's actually wrong to try and change it um so they they were okay with me being gay before i was um and i'm very lucky and i think that's probably one of the reasons why i'm able to talk and why i'm able to do this podcast and why i'm able to do the work that i do um because i've had an extremely supportive family network that um not only helped me out of the gay conversion movement, but that has, um, I mean, they, they did a 180. Like, they more than support me in my relationship and, you know, in just, you know, they. Um, <laughs> my mum is so funny. She goes to um, quite a conservative church. And um, I remember a few years ago, I had a, a, a boyfriend. Okay, it was like six years ago. I had, I had this boyfriend and... Um, he came to Easter service at the church, you know, because she, she she invited me and I said, oh, well, I'm going to be hanging out with my, 
you know, whatever that day. And she said, I'll bring him along. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm sure he'd love to. So anyway, he came and, um, and I said to mum before he went in, I said, look, you can, you can introduce him as my friend if you want to. Like, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. And she said, I absolutely will not. And then she made a point of, you know, dragging us around and introducing her, you know, her son and his boyfriend, you know, like, so, you know, my parents are actually amazing. And so I, you know, I'm very lucky, but, um, for me, it was a journey, um, after that initial conversation, um, it took several years, as you can imagine, I guess, to, uh, to really be okay with, um, or to, to actually reconcile my faith and sexuality. But um, I, I remember that during that, that initial conversation, I um, I didn't leave it thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, oh, well, you're like, yeah, you know what, mum, you're right. I'm going to just stop this. Um, but, 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 but I did um, get to a point after a couple of hours of talking of saying, you know, I think I do need to um, stop saying that I'm ex-gay. And I need to actually admit that I'm actually just gay. Um I'm not going to act on it, but I'm going to um, stop lying and I'm going to start being myself. And then from, from there, I think that was the um, the turning point. And then it then took several years after that to actually fully, um, I guess, develop my own or wrestle with my faith and, you know, come to terms with things. And I guess where you are now then must feel a bit like that whole, you know, notion of the blind man who can now see that, that idea. Yeah, kind of. It's, well, you know, I just feel like I'm just, I'm, I feel really, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm so blessed that I've got the family that I do. Um, and that, um, and I guess that I, that I survived that period of my life, you know? Um, and like, you know, I don't want to over dramatize it, but you know, a lot of people don't survive, the ex-gay movement, you know, a lot of people um, um, take their own lives because they really, like me, they don't see a way out. They don't see that, that you know, I mean, you know, this, this innate part of themselves is totally um, uh, at odds with their faith, which is so important to them, you know. Um, moreover, a lot of people um, leave far more damaged than I am, you know? Mm. And it's not just psychological damage, it's emotional, um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, um, re- relationships that have broken apart completely because of um, their um, uh, their obsession with trying to change their sexuality. Um, um, a lot of people suffer financial loss from it, you know? It's... The cost is huge, um, and the damage is always long-lasting. It's not, you know, when you leave the movement, it's not just, okay, well, you're better now, you know? Mm. It's, yeah. We should mention as we move to wrapping this conversation up that if anything here has obviously brought up emotional or sensitive areas for people, that there are resources out there that you can uh, look to in mm. Australia, obviously Lifeline is a major one and all over the world there will be resources if you do search for those resources 
um, where people can, I guess, hear your story, but there's people you can talk to and, and help you mm. can get. Because I know a lot of this is very sensitive, very real stuff for oh, a lot yeah. of people. Um, just as a way of closing, we are coming up to a federal election as we record this. That will have finished by the time it goes up or, or just about be happening, I think. Um, I, we know that the political side of conversion therapy has mm-hmm. been in the news a bit with Victoria. Have they banned it yet or are they moving to ban it? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're mov- they're, they're moving to, towards it. So um, mm. there hasn't been any legislation change yet, um, but they've committed to it. And so what, what work have you done, I suppose, as an activist against gay conversion therapy? What's that um, been like? Well, I'm, I'm kind of an accidental activist because um, all I did was start a petition <laughs> last year out of frustration because, you know, I'd told my story a lot of times in the media over the, um, you know, prior years um, and a lot of people had told their story. And it was like every time it came up in the media... Um, you know, people would get upset when they read it. They'd say, or, 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 or watched it on TV and they'd say, oh my goodness, does this happen in Australia? What the heck? How, how is this legal, you know? And, you know, then a few days later, well, nothing changed. And, you know, people forgot and, you know, I'd tell my story again the next year and other people would tell their stories. And I just got frustrated because I thought, no, there's got to be a way that we can, or that people can... Um, can record their, their 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 outrage that this is going on, and so I just um, you know there was a, a newspaper article that came out um, um, by Farah Tamaz, and she did a an investigative report into um, LGBT conversion, and um, I just thought I'm going to start a petition, and I'll probably only get about you know 20 signatures, but I'm going to start something because I'm angry, <laughs> you know. And so I started a petition, and I mean within a few days it had like 7,000 and then 15,000, and it just jumped up. And currently it's got just under 60,000 signatures, and um, it was amazing. It just um, that led to me being able to talk about my story and um, and 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 meet with other survivors as well, um, and talk on the television. So to an audience that I that I would never have the opportunity to speak to, you know. Um, it opened up the door for me to go on Christians Like Us, um, the SBS sh- uh, documentary. Um, and uh, one of the most significant things I think that came out of it was um, being able to get together with other survivors that and write a statement called the So Survivor Statement, which is S-O-C-E, Survivor Statement. Um, you can go to sosurvivors.com.au if you want to have a look at it. And basically, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a document that was co-authored by um, many survivors of LGBT conversion. Uh, and it defines the movement in Australia. It gives a history of the movement in Australia um, and uh, gives... Sp- specific recommendations um, for moving forward and for, for combating the issue in Australia. Uh, so that was pretty significant. So I, I sent that document, which was um, uh, endorsed and supported by Amnesty International and a whole lot of other organisations like ACON and Thorn Harbour Health and PFLAG and um, Big List, and we we sent that as well as um, I think at that point it was about forty five thousand signatures or something to um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and about forty other uh, ministers of Parliament, um, and so hopefully that document is now being looked at 
and well, I mean, I know that it has been. Um, it's certainly been um, been used in a lot of discussions and things with um, different, you know, uh, ministers around the country. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- there's a whole list of recommendations. Um, you can go to sosurvivors.com.au to have a look at them and endorse them yourself. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for no, opening up, you. for sharing your story thank with you us. Thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. It's thank been you. A, it's been a great conversation. Yeah. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.